Anne Graham Lotz is the 71-year-old daughter of Billy and Ruth Graham. Like her father, she has become a highly respected speaker and author. In fact, her dad, Billy Graham, said she's the best preacher in the family. And if you saw Billy Graham's funeral and saw her speak a few years back, I think I would be in agreement. This past week, I received an email promoting her latest book, that is entitled simply, Jesus in Me, subtitled Experiencing the Holy Spirit as a Constant Companion. And contained in that email were a couple of sample chapters from the book that I read, and I've got to tell you, it seems like a book that would be worth reading. In fact, it accomplished its intended purpose, namely making me want to read the book. So here's what I'm going to suggest. After one of you buys it and reads it, I would like to borrow it, all right? I've pretty well tapped out my library fund for this year, but uh, you can buy the book and then we'll put it in the church library. But Ann Lotz writes in the introduction the following. She says, weather permitting, early each morning that I am home, I walk and run for about two and a half miles. This has been my routine for over 30 years. As I grow older, I also grow more grateful for the physical ability to maintain this exercise. I have been consistent and committed to it, not just for the physical benefits, but also because it's a great stress reliever. The burdens of the day seem to be placed on hold for the 30 or 40 minutes it takes to complete my route. Over the years, I have had multiple walking partners who have either moved on or to other forms of exercise or dropped exercising altogether. The friend who walks with me now from time to time is a delight. While walking, we engage in energetic discussions, solve the world's problems, share insights into scripture, and often end by praying for each other. Her companionship has made me aware of an interesting facet of my routine. When she walks with me, the journey does not seem nearly as long or arduous as when I walk it alone. With her beside me, I seem to have more joy, more energy, and the time seems to fly by. Somehow, her presence makes the walk easier. On the other hand, when I walk by myself, the routine seems harder and longer. A good companion, she writes, makes a distinct difference in my overall enjoyment and well-being. Which brings me to the walk of life. Living day after day, week after week, year after year requires effort, energy, commitment, focus, and thought. To be perfectly honest, I'm old enough to know that the path of life leads through emotional, physical, relational, and spiritual aches and pain. Some are irritating, some disruptive, some much more serious and even life-threatening. At times I have found myself just trying to make it through the day, this month, or this year. There are times when I have fulfilled my commitment just to check it off my list and get on to the next thing so I can go on to the next thing. The walk itself becomes a burden, a drudgery. What I have needed is a walking partner for life. 
Someone who would come alongside me and share every step of my journey, day in and day out. Someone I could trust, believe in, and enjoy. Someone whose very presence would bring joy and peace and hope. Someone who would know me, who understands me, someone who loves me. Where have I found such a walking partner? Amazingly, as a child of God, I didn't have to look around for one. I just needed to look within. Because God has given me the ultimate walking partner for life, His Spirit. And not just for life, but forever. Through the ups and downs, the tears and joys, the griefs and the comforts, I have experienced the constant companionship of the Holy Spirit. Friend, that serves as an excellent introduction to this morning's message. Whereas Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 16, he says, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says in verse 18, he says, but if you were led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You know, I think it's safe to say this morning that the most misunderstood person of the Trinity has got to be the Holy Spirit. We understand the Father. We think we understand Jesus. But the Holy Spirit, I mean, he's kind of an anomaly. So much so that some of us call him a ghost. And, you know, we could spend our entire message this morning just talking about this whole issue of the Spirit of God. But let me just remind you some of the critical issues regarding the Holy Spirit. And the first and foremost is he is a person. He is the third person of the Godhead. And that is evidenced by his actions and how he can be treated. The Holy Spirit was active in every major point in the life of Christ. He was there for the virgin birth. He was there at his baptism, at his temptation. He was there throughout his ministry. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit has been active in the plan of salvation. The Bible says he convicts the unbeliever of sin in his life. And when that person comes to the point of repentance and they put their trust in Jesus Christ, he regenerates them and there's the new birth. Titus 3, verse 3 says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved to all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Paul goes on and he says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. He saved us, he says, through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Additionally, the Holy Spirit baptizes, he indwells, he seals the believer, which is what gives us our security. He teaches us, he guides us, he, he prays for us. Did you realize that? Romans 8, 26 through 28 says that the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know how we ought to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. He fills us 
The Bible says that he gives spiritual gifts, which are those unique capacities to serve in the body of Christ. And the Spirit of God can be resisted and blasphemed. He can be grieved and quenched, all of which confirm the fact that he is a person. And with all of that being said, Galatians 5, which we want to look at this morning, says that it's also possible to live by the power of the Spirit and defeat sin and then exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Now, last week we spent the entire time together talking about that conflict that's taking place in your heart and in mine is there's the old sin nature and the new regenerate nature that's within the flesh and the spirit. And these two are battling one another. The flesh is that old, ordinary human spirit that prefers to get its satisfaction from living independently of God. Its only interest is in self, prestige, and worldly pleasures. Let me just remind you of three of the things, and we didn't say them quite like this, but I think this will be helpful. Three practical truths or implications of this conflict that's taking place within your life and mine. And the first is this, even the most mature, pious Christian still battles sin in their life. Sin is not dead in the Christian but it's rather something that we will always, day in and day out, struggle with. Friend, there is never a point in the life of the believer where we no longer sin. Now hopefully, as we grow in our walk with God, hopefully as we understand the terrible consequences of sin and the joy and blessing that obedience brings, hopefully we will sin less but we will never become sinless. We always have to fight sin. It's always there. We can never make the claim that somehow sin has been eradicated within our lives. Some women will say that. But friend, we will never for an hour here below be exempt from the elements or the conditions of evil residing not merely around us, but also within Second thing I think we need to be reminded of is that sin can reign and even dominate the life of of a believer. Now when I say that, I'm not suggesting that sin can destroy the new nature or can cause us to lose our salvation. But because there is this unrelenting, constant conflict that is within us, It's going to last throughout our lifetime until you and I are in the presence of God. Sin can dominate and cause a Christian to become a slave to his cravings. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that we're not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies so that we will obey its evil desires. We're not to give in to sin. And let me just mention that it's not the struggle that matters It's how we respond to that struggle. Again, all of us are going to struggle with sin. No one can avoid the conflict between the flesh and the spirit. 
No one gets a pass from outward pressures and inward turmoil. There's no such thing as a second blessing or spiritual experience that can magically propel you to a state where you no longer struggle with sin. And the third thing I think we need to remind ourselves is that while sin can reign and dominate our bodies, it does not need to. Even again, there's this conflict within, we can gain the victory. And I'm convinced that our relationship to the Spirit of God has an impact on how we pray, how we witness to others, what kind of gifts we hope to exercise, how secure we feel in our walk with God and our salvation, how we make decisions. And the Spirit of God residing within is an indispensable part of our life for holy living, communion with God, service to his church, and every decision and every relationship in life that you will make. So that raises a a very important question. The question is simply this. What exactly does Paul mean when he says in verse 16 of Galatians 5, walk by the Spirit? What does it mean when he says in verse 18 that we are to be led by the Spirit? Well, I want to suggest that it's not as complicated as people make it. To walk in the Spirit simply means that we live every day of our life in dependence upon God. When he says in verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, His point here is that what the law could not do, the Holy Spirit is capable of. In other words, the Christian life is not to be lived with a bunch of rules, a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's to be lived in dependence upon God. And I love the fact that Paul uses the word walk. He doesn't say run. He doesn't say jump on a bicycle or a motorcycle or get in your car. (laughs) That word walk is a very ordinary word. It means to move slowly, deliberately, thoughtfully from one place to another. It's in the imperative. It's in the present tense, which means we're to keep on walking. We're to take those series of small steps in the same direction over a long period of time that will move us to a place of immaturity, to a place of maturity. Walking implies a steady progress in one direction by means of a deliberate choice over a long period of time. It means allowing our conduct to be directed by the Spirit of God. It's not flashy. It's simply that slow, deliberative walk that will eventually get you there from point A to point B. From a place of being a baby Christian to being an adult Christian. It's maintaining unbroken fellowship and reliance upon the Holy Spirit of God to do what he came to do and what he alone can do. It's not a matter of gritting your church teeth and squaring your shoulders and tightening your belt 
And drawing in three deep breaths and saying, I'm going to live for God today even if it kills me. Well, friend, it just might. That's not how you live the Christian life. It's an issue of waking up in the morning and saying, God, I can't make it without you. God, I'm going to depend upon you. I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to make every decision today with you in mind. And when you and I do that, we begin to experience a joy and a victory and a sense that God is at the center of our life. Let me me see if this helps. Every day, all of us make literally thousands of decisions. Most of them are seemingly inconsequential. Most of them seemingly have no moral component. They're just decisions that we make. Will I get out of bed? Will I take a shower? Will I eat breakfast? And if so, what will I eat? Will I drive to work or take public transportation? Who will I talk to today? How am I going to relate to my coworkers? Where am I going to eat lunch? What time will I leave work? What will I say to my spouse as soon as I walk in the door? Am I going to sit down or am I going to go play with the kids? And you know, all of those decisions that we make day in and day out go on and on and on. And they go all the way down, you know, to whether you're going to tie your shoes or leave them untied, whether you're going to tuck your shirt in or not. But here's the thing that I think we need to remember. There's no such thing as a truly neutral decision. Every choice that you and I make brings with it a consequence. And either we are going to be moving in the choices that we make towards the light, or we're going to be taking those tiny steps towards the darkness. Walking in the Spirit is not some mystical experience reserved for a few special Christians. It's nothing more than simply choosing by God's grace to take tiny steps towards the light day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And as we're taking those steps towards God, steps towards obedience, we realize that there's always going to be a struggle, always going to be a challenge, always going to be a labor and a fight. And what we have to do is apply ourselves and at times be involved with self-denial. And we need to realize that when we do that, we can win. Now I want to close by offering seven helpful suggestions. And I tried to make this just as practical as I possibly could. Let me start with the basic assumption, and it's this. In order for you to walk by the Spirit, you have to have the Spirit residing within. You have to have experienced the work of regeneration. You have to be a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's assumption number one. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, what I'm about to say to you is just going to go right over the top of your head. It really doesn't apply to you. Because step number one is trusting Jesus Christ. Acknowledging before God that you're a sinner, that Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he was raised from the dead, 
that a full and complete payment was made for your salvation, the payment for sin, and you put your trust and your hope in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And when you do that, you're in the family of God. It's not raising a hand, walking an aisle, signing a card, or being baptized. It's simply trusting Jesus Christ. But then, having made that decision, number one, you purpose to be godly and discipline yourself for that purpose. Paul in 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You make that conscious decision. You decide that my aim in life from here on out is to become a man or woman of God. I'm going to determine that my life today is going to bring God glory because he saved me. I'm going to live for him. And you study yourself. And you work out a plan that will cut off any opportunity that would come your way to sin. If you find yourself struggling with inappropriate material, you set up safeguards and accountability groups to keep you away from that temptation. If you find yourself tempted to drunkenness or drugs, you stay away from people or places where you could fall. Discipline implies going against your immediate feelings and your impulses for a higher goal. You're like that athlete who chooses to set aside certain foods, even though they may taste good, and he determines that he's going to work out whether he likes it or not. You know, I got scolded by my wife coming to church today. She said, you didn't do your exercises yesterday because I had my full knee replacement. And I said, you're right. I didn't feel like it. That didn't cut it with her. So this afternoon, I'm going to double my efforts with my exercises for my knee. But you discipline yourself. By the way, that's the first day I hadn't done anything, so I think that's pretty good. But you discipline yourself. Secondly, you kill sin at its root so that it will not bear its deadly fruit. You deal with the root issue. The great Puritan writer John Owens in his book Temptation and Sin says you knock the fruit off. You can knock the fruit off the tree, but if you don't want it to grow, you've got to cut the tree down at its root. And that's true. Sin begins in the heart. It begins at the thought level. And so we deal with it at that level. Number three, we pray and ask God for deliverance and take whatever actions you must take to flee temptation. You put your trust in God, but then you also have to take action. Psalm 50, 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. And sometimes people say, well, I'm just going to call upon God and, you know, I'll find deliverance. No, because scripture also says that we are to flee immorality. We're to flee youthful lusts. Fourthly, we need to set our mind on the things of the spirit, not on the things of the flesh. 
We set our mind on the things of the Spirit, not on the things of the flesh. We think on the things that are pure and lovely and honorable and of a good report. We think of the many wonderful truths and promises that are found in the Word of God. And we claim them. Number five, we spend time daily in the Word of God. You know, it's been said, and it's so true, either sin will keep you from the Bible, or the Bible will keep you from sin. Last Sunday, my son and daughter-in-law gave to their son who was baptized a Bible. And they asked if I would write in it, and I did. I said some words of encouragement to Sam, and, and then I wrote down this verse in his Bible, and I had him look it up, and I said, Sam, this is what I want you to remember. Psalm 119, verse 9. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Number six, on a very practical level, we acknowledge from the heart that we are helpless to do good apart from his enablement, and we determine that because that's true, we're going to walk each and every day in total dependency upon the Spirit. And it's a step-by-step process that takes you towards the goal. Please remember this. The struggle is not sinful. In fact, the struggle is an evidence that you're a child of God. And so because we have that struggle, we have to depend on him. And finally, number seven, we keep the cross in view at all times to deepen our love for Christ and our hatred of sin and our desire to glorify God. And friend, I think the very, very best way for us to do that is to come to the Lord's table regularly. Because what we do when we come to the Lord's table is simply this. We look within. and We examine our hearts. And we say, Lord, is there sin in my life? Are there relationships that are fractured that need to be mended? And we determine that as far as it's possible within our own ability, we're going to live at peace with all men. And we're going to address sin in our life. And we're going to remember the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on our behalf at the cross of Calvary. We're going to determine that we're going to fight as a child of God because we know the Lord is on our side. And when we find ourselves weakened, we come to the table and we remember him. And we find there the needed strength for the victory. Let's pray. And as I'm praying, I'll ask the worship team to come forward, as well as those who will be serving communion. Let's pray. Father, as we close out this part of our service and move into that time of remembrance around the table, we're grateful, Father, for the blessed Holy Spirit that resides within. We pray that each and every day we would submit ourselves to your power and your purposes for our lives. And we pray that as we do so, we would walk in a way that brings you glory and honor. Help us to live loving, obedient lives so that in this life we may have full joy. We are grateful that you did not design us to go through life sad and depressed, discouraged and defeated. 
but rather you've given to us the means whereby we can have victory. And we pray that we would realize that that victory comes as we lovingly obey you. Help us, Father, because of this remembrance of you around this, your table, to have our hearts express a love for you with all of our soul, mind, and strength. Help us to know that that is the fulfillment of the law. Help us to realize that you desire to produce in us the fruit of the Spirit. And that is our prayer this morning as we gather in remembrance of you. And we pray towards that end in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.